Welcome to the podcast Beyond the Triangle. I'm Amy Beth Horman, and this is episode 17, Motivation and Initiative. I'm very excited to talk to everyone today about these two things that I find are absolutely essential to the progress of young artists. Today's episode will talk about getting kids to take initiative in their work, on goal setting, and keeping motivation high and healthy in the house. I will also describe something that I use a lot in training, which I call repertoire windows. I believe it serves to help kids stay on track with long-term goals and building their repertoire. And while I talk about all of this, I'll be speaking quite a bit about that transition that all of our kids need to make, where they move from having a parent there and helping them during practice to really going it on their own. As usual, I will be giving real talk from all of my perspectives, performer, teacher, studio parent, and judge. So let's get started. If you've listened to my prior episodes, you know that I believe that it's a parent's role to help scaffold a child's schedule, performances, nutrition, commitments, but inevitably there comes a point where you wish as a parent that you could take a step back and still see things moving forward with practice in a positive direction, but initiated by your very talented child. This generally happens around the tween years, but as is with most parenting, this is not a one-size-fits-all. So I find it's more helpful to talk about the signs for when a child might be nearing ready. And before we talk about that, I also think it's helpful to think about what signs the parents are showing. Most of the parents I have helped along this path are semi, if not totally exhausted by this point because they have helped their child beautifully harness their talents and meet goals for years now. And I'm not saying that parents don't enjoy being there a thousand percent for their kids while they chase their dreams. But it is a lot of hard work, so it's normal to be a little exhausted, especially during certain parts of the year. But at this point, when I believe a child is ready to transition into independent practice, the parents are showing a little bit more wear and tear because they're not just regular tired. They're tired from a growing amount of struggle that they're facing in that practice room. And maybe they've seen some struggle in the practice before, but now it's really at another level. Arguments, stalling, refusals to focus. Yep, the practice room is a quasi-war zone for some of you at times. But what you might not know is that this is one of the first telltale signs that your child might be ready to start practicing more on their own. And that might bring about some feelings of anxiety in parents, especially when auditions are nearing or when the stakes are very high, because you wonder, can they do it alone? What will happen when I walk out? Will my child keep productivity up if I'm not there to ensure that things get done? As a mom who still practices 90% of the time with her child, I can tell you that the very idea of Ava practicing alone is like a beacon of hope for me and my schedule. Ava still wants me there in practice, but now on rare occasion, if I'm sick, 
I catch her taking her violin out and getting work done on her own, and I catch my breath. I know she wants this, and she has made her dreams clear, but seeing her initiate the work we all know is necessary is a breathtaking feeling for a parent. And she is starting to argue more in our practice together, so I feel independent practice is not that far off. When tensions rise in our practice room, if frustrations get too high, I will leave the room so that Ava can deal with it on her own. This removes the power struggle between us and allows her a chance to really try to troubleshoot on her own and make some progress without me watching over her. Let's talk about some other signs that we see from students in this age group as they're nearing readiness for independent practice. For most of the gifted students I've encountered over the years, it does start to happen in late elementary or early middle school. I've talked about this in prior episodes, but this is the point in their development as people where they would very much like to have some say in things. They're starting to explore more solid opinions on the things that are going on around them, and they're vocalizing those opinions with a lot more confidence. They're also questioning authority or the needs for rules or regulations at all. So maybe they will try this out a bit in practice too. You'll see them negotiating. You might see it pop up in the order they practice things or in how long they practice one exercise over another. They might ask if they can skip practice in the afternoon and make up for it the next time or if they can approach something in a new way to tackle a particularly sticky problem in their technique. They're starting to problem solve on their own and they might challenge the veracity of a practice technique that doesn't seem to be working for them. Most kids at this age are prone to testing in every department in their life. So you may actually see them not do a practice technique at all just to see what happens. Here's some good news. They also have a focus which is elongating now, and they're capable of listening to you and contemplating your opinion, taking in different ideas and mixing them with their own. They're also developing a finer sense of time and understand how long a week is, how many months there are in a year, and how long it is until their next jury at conservatory. While they may not understand how long it will take them to learn a piece, they do understand how many hours there are in a day. And while that might seem simple, it's incredibly important for them to understand those basics of time so that they can schedule their own practice and meet goals. If you take notes during your child's lessons and you have a chart that you use for practice to keep track of things, you might start noticing your child mentioning that they need to do a little more of one thing and a little less of the next. They're starting to balance what they feel needs to be done in order to achieve a certain result. As they start vocalizing this, that is also a wonderful sign that they're getting ready to take some initiative. So once we start seeing these signs, what can we do as parents and teachers to help things along in a positive direction? I personally believe that this process, this transition to independence, is something that gets done not very well a lot of the time, and that it can hinder motivation 
and the ability to take initiative for years to come. That's why I wrote this episode. When Ava was little, if I wasn't available, I would write a practice list for her to do with her father for when I wasn't there. It worked perfectly. They would check things off the list. She was proud to show him every single thing done correctly. But now, as she gets older, that list doesn't work so well anymore. So what's the transition? I think the reason that list doesn't work as well anymore is because it's not coming from her. It's her being told what to do, again. And at this age, they don't do that very well. Sure, they know that they need to get a certain amount of things done in order to make progress on their instrument, but they would prefer that it not come from you and instead that they come up with a plan for how to improve on X, Y, and Z. And the good news is, with as many years of training as they've already had, they likely have a full arsenal of practice techniques ready to go. But have they ever been asked to diagnose a problem and prescribe themselves a practice technique? Now's the time. So I suggest that parents spend some time with their children as they're transitioning to make a list of practice goals and then brainstorm with them on a way to tackle them using practice practice techniques that are tried and true. This is a great way to start moving them into independent work while empowering them, showing them what they already know and how to put it to great use. They want to play their pieces beautifully and they probably have the tools in order to do so, but they haven't quite put that together yet. Have you ever seen a kid use math for the very first time out of the classroom in order to buy something that they really want? It's an empowering feeling for a child to use hard-earned skills in a way that gets them what they want. At this stage in the game, I think it's part of our job as parents and teachers to test their knowledge by asking how they think they can work on common technical problems, just to see if they prescribe a viable method. If they come up with three methods, great! You can have them try all three over the course of a few days and then ask them to determine which one was most effective for them in this particular instance. The important takeaway here for parents is to move away from a set list of things to do like chores and start veering toward a list of goals and strategies. This gives the student a chance to show the knowledge they have been accruing for a while now And most kids are thrilled to show you that they know when to apply certain kinds of practice. Let's give some examples. If the goal is to make their piece at tempo and steady, they should be able to come up with a few metronome methods to achieve this. I have had my students find the hardest spots in a piece and identify the tempo they can play them without struggle and then apply that tempo to the whole piece or a major section. I then have them use that tempo going up three notches on the metronome until they're confident and relaxed. Then I have them go down two notches again to stabilize, and then up three. They zigzag until they reach their goal. Perhaps as they do this, they encounter a second goal, 
of making their 16th notes even or singing in a particular section. At that point, they might add a metronome practice technique to even out the notes in that passage. Or maybe they'll try it in backwards bows to equalize the stroke. Then as they do that, perhaps they notice a certain spot which is reticent to stay in tune. They could then stop what they're doing and mark in sympathetic ringtones that match their open strings and do some slow work. So one practice technique may lead to another. Maybe they'll write in intervals like half steps or fifths across the strings in order to improve precision. Most of these types of practice methods are what I call first-tier methods and should be well-versed by now. You might get really innovative methods from your teacher, but these are ones that you should have known for a while now. I call them first-tier because you've tried them a lot and you've seen them work, and a child will trust that. In my studio, frequently I'll have a student come to me requesting a practice prescription. This means that they've tried all of their first-tier methods, but nothing seems to be quite working. So they're looking for something a little deeper, something that really is personalized to their technique and the issues that they're having. Here's my pro tip for everyone to have a happy 2019 transitioning to more independent practice where you see tons of motivation and initiative. Once your child has developed a goal sheet for their practice, have them bring it to their teacher in their next lesson and get loaded up with new practice techniques and ideas, not just first-tier ones, but new ones that go a little deeper. Ask their teacher to review with them these first-tier methods, too, to make sure they're doing them in the absolute most effective way possible. You might be surprised to learn they're cutting their efficacy in half by doing something they aren't aware of. So hone up on those basic practice methods with a teacher present. Then they can experiment in the lesson to nail down some new practice techniques for them and come home ready to practice with a brushed up 2019 arsenal. The more empowered a child is in being able to change their outcome, the more they will be motivated to work for it. Sometimes parents come to me complaining their child is just running things through with no goals in sight. When a child is just running things through blindly and is not using a strategy, their progress will be slower and they'll lack motivation. But who can blame them? They aren't perceiving getting anywhere with their time spent, and this would be frustrating to anyone. Plus, remember at this age, they're getting peer pressure and have outside temptations for their time and energy. They're missing out on other things to be practicing. So we really want to make sure they are getting some bang for their buck, so to speak. So if your child is one that is just running things through, that's the perfect time to be having a goal sheet and developing some strategies. They need to believe that they are in control of their own progress and of how they play on stage eventually. And here's some real talk for tween and early teen parents. Over the years, I've come to believe that some kids will do that blind run-through useless type of practice even when they know a whole list of practice techniques because they just haven't connected the dots. This isn't insolence or laziness on their part necessarily. 
It goes strictly in line with their child development. They need a little help getting across that practice bridge. And this is where I think parents stepping in gently and helping them brainstorm using that hard-earned knowledge can really change the game. This isn't the same as nagging, because I'm sure the parents can already list those practice techniques, but instead it is prompting the child to identify the right one for each technical challenge or musical goal. You want them to do this on their own without you giving the answers, even if it takes time to do so, because later when they succeed, they can own that rather than both of you feeling an I told you so lump in your throat. Trust me, I've been there too with both students and my own kid. Once they're over the bridge in that they have identified the right strategies, applied them correctly, and seen results, you will start to see them practice more efficiently and more often. And this is a process toward independence, not you sneaking out of the room entirely. I would plan on taking a good six months to transition or else you will see major fallout in progress and achievement. Indeed, I see many parents put off this transition because they're fearful of seeing their kids' progress slip back. But in my experience, if you step back slowly and give the right amount of encouragement and space, you will not only see a surge forward in happiness by the close of the conservatory year, but you will see a ton of progress. And remember my last episode about mindset and disposition. A happy practicer moves faster than one who has a frustrated parent in there reminding them of all of the things that they truly already know. So let's say that after all of this, you've decided maybe it is time for you to take a small step back. If you are slinking out of certain practices after practice strategies have been established and worried about how things are going, tell them you'll be back in 20 minutes for a progress report. Have them try out two techniques while you are gone or have a chart where they can mark which spots they have tackled in your absence. Then come in and celebrate any achievements while re-strategizing for the next 20 minutes. And please remember, it's not just about what you hear, it's about what they feel. And that is something that they own. So you need to ask your child, yes, it sounds great. How does it feel though? Which way does it feel the freest, the most relaxed? Which way do you think you can perform the most beautifully in front of everyone? These are things that need to be assessed now too. And some practice techniques will lead to a better outcome in that department. But that's a dialogue worth having, and it's one where they can express something to you that you wouldn't know otherwise. It's new information, and it's theirs. While you're trying out all of these new things, make sure that you don't allow practice to go on too long, seeing frustration reappear. Doing these things can take more energy for children who aren't used to doing it on their own. In my view, practice in these early months of independence takes so much more energy for the kids, you may want to end practice 10 or 15 minutes earlier. This would be a good thing to show them because it will teach them that productivity is really what you're looking for, not hours on the clock. 
Most kids love the idea of less practice, and it might keep everyone upbeat and happy to return to practice later. They will be curious also to see if their strategies are still working. Let's talk a little bit more about connecting the dots. We have to be willing to state the obvious, even if it seems a bit nuts as parents. If they strategize, study deeply, practice something well and correctly, and then perform clean in large part because of that focused work, we need to help them close the loop on that process by verbalizing it with them. Whether it is from a run-through at home or a big performance or audition, make sure that you tell them that you see the connection. Here are a few examples of what you might say. Hey, you know what? Ever since you started doing that rhythmic work with the metronome, that one section sounds spectacular. I think it's my favorite section now. And remember what a pain it used to be? You must be so happy about that. How about this one? That spot in the Mozart where you accompany the piano now is so lovely. Is that the spot you were studying with the score the other night? It sounds completely different now. Or this. Wow, that super loud part at the end where the piano's going nuts and you have to be heard above it all is fantastic now. Is that because of the ringtone work you did? Those notes are flying out like bells. It's like a whole new instrument you're playing. This might seem like overkill with the tweens and the teens, but I have seen this be really transformative to their work, even when I have done it as their teacher. Because as a studio parent, you were probably giving a list you devised from notes taken at lessons, but now they are starting to devise plans more on their own. They are living the proof that they can do it on their own, and there is nothing more motivating than that. Their troubleshooting of each technical spot will directly connect to what they are capable of doing. So don't just say, beautiful job on today's performance. Go the extra few sentences with them and say, you think that thoughtful, focused work you have seen them doing really paid off big time this go-round. Get specific and mention things like I gave you in my example so that they know that even if you aren't there as much in practice, that you're still listening and that you're plugged in and invested. The first few go-rounds your child does as an independent practicer are your real opportunities to speak up and encourage them to keep it up. Tell them that you can't wait to see where this is all going to take them this year and that this is an exciting corner they're turning into independent work. The truth is they're learning how powerful a practicer they can be And if you can help your kid fall in love with that process, at this point, you're going to be way ahead of the game. They will need to love practicing and refining and learning new music to pursue music professionally. There's no getting around putting in a lot of practice for years to come. I remember vividly turning this corner at about 11, and I was off to the races after that with parents only listening to my practice from afar. That feeling of, hey, I've got this, was palpable and powerful to me. I've said this in a prior episode, but it bears repeating here. One of my absolute warmest memories as a child, out of all of the memories I have, is that of me practicing in the living room, which was right next to the kitchen, knowing that my mother was cooking our dinner 
and was checking in on me every once in a while to see how my work was going. It's not a memory about anything specific I was practicing or a number on the metronome or what my actual goal was during that session. It's a memory of a feeling that I had, a feeling of being loved and supported, but also a feeling that she knew I could do it on my own. Now I know even with these strategies in place, it isn't all roses when it comes to practice with our kids. They can be motivated and show initiative and still balk and stall. I've seen it all. I've seen students win major competitions with parents barely able to celebrate with them because they've had to fight so much in the practice room to get them there that month. Nobody's perfect and all kids go through phases, but let's have some real talk about how to help keep that from happening or at least how to minimize it. As we move them into independent practice, let's make sure that we have some goals and things on the calendar that will help them get their instruments out and get to work. Never underestimate the power of a performance or audition goal for a child. I find more and more parents are putting off opportunities to perform or not being proactive enough in setting an active performance schedule for their kids at the pre-college training level. Sometimes I fear this is happening because the parents aren't sure their kid is ready to play a piece polished or because they are fearful of a bad result. But as we've talked about in previous podcasts, multiple performances on harder works are par for the course. You cannot avoid them in the higher levels of training. So you can't get to that juicy fourth try on the Mendelssohn until you've done your best on rounds one through three. At this level, you shouldn't be performing twice at studio recitals on two polished pieces. I think you should be growing both of those pieces plus a few more from different musical periods on stage like it's a greenhouse. It takes time for these students to bloom, and it is a glorious process to watch. So trust me, you don't want to miss it by putting off scheduling things. This is how young artists find their voice and stabilize their technique for stage. In a perfect world, a child would be motivated and inspired to practice whether they had a concert or a goal or not. But that's generally not how things work, is it? Let's say you don't have conservatory concerts offered to you. You could find a church or a place of worship or retirement home with a piano, play at school or at your grandparents' house or at your cousin's wedding. Setting up performances needs to be a priority and it doesn't need to be in a fancy hall. Let's be honest, having a performance on the calendar just ignites kids to practice more. It's a little kick for them to make sure that that motivation doesn't dwindle. But sometimes the initial excitement of a concert date doesn't last as long as we would like, and that practice light dims more than we can handle as studio parents. We find ourselves back in the saddle again, and this is where I advise parents to set very firm boundaries and keep them. Ava loves to perform, so she would try to perform every weekend if we let her, but we make our goals clear. The conservatory has a system where the teacher has to recommend their student for a performance and state that they are ready. Then we set up piano rehearsals, and then we perform. But that doesn't really touch on the practice at home, right? Well, Ava knows that if she doesn't practice her piece every day, 
the performance is off the table. Sound harsh? As a teacher and a parent, this is the standard I wish to set. And because she knows I am good for my word, I believe it keeps our practice struggles at a minimum. We owe the music and her teacher at the conservatory our best efforts, at the very least. And I'm quick to tell her that there are other kids who are waiting to play too, and they are ready to take her spot on that program. This is a privilege to perform. It's a meaningful exchange which requires thought and preparation. If she wants to perform, she needs to exhibit the behavior of someone who aspires to give it their best, and that includes daily practice. Ava also knows that it doesn't mean her performance will be perfect or that every practice has to be perfect. We all have our off days. But in my opinion, there needs to be a certain standard of behavior and commitment kept. At this level of training, I think this is not only reasonable, but prudent given the difficulty of the works that they are presenting. And here's why. With kids like these, there's more than a lackluster performance at stake because the literature has become so difficult. Most kids, especially in the tween group, have a lot of trouble understanding how much work needs to be applied to achieve a certain result. If the parent isn't a musician, they might not know either. It could take them a long while to really get a handle on that. They will truly believe they can learn the Beethoven Kreutzer Sonata in three weeks and give it a go. It's only through experience that they understand that this isn't truly possible. Cramming doesn't really apply to classical music. The teacher signature in our conservatory is a safeguard to ensure that a bad stage experience that could stick is less likely. But our job as parents is to see that possibility dwindle even farther by instilling importance in the quality and consistency of their practice at home. A teacher can easily approve a student for a performance, and then the student might proceed to let their personal practice slip, leading to real trouble in performance. Now, as you know, I'm not concerned with perfect performances or mistakes on stage, but a negative stage experience can have lasting impact on young kids, and we should all be working together to avoid that. If it happens when everyone is doing their best, we can chalk it up to experience and mega difficult works, brush ourselves off, and try again. But when there are major performance issues because of repeatedly dodgy preparation, we're headed down a slippery slope and sending the wrong message to our young artists. Most of our kids love performing on stage, and we want to preserve that joy as best as we can because it is a huge motivator to them. So don't be afraid as a parent to set some rules and standards when it comes to practice and preparation if you have a performance or an opportunity coming up. Especially at this level, that's not punishing them. That's protecting them, their gift, and their joy of music. Other major motivators for kids this age are auditions for youth orchestras or summer festivals and camps. Most kids I have taught crave both of these opportunities and are willing to work very hard to not just be accepted into these programs, but hopefully seat well and be considered for special opportunities within. These two opportunities contain time with their peers too, which taps into their development right now. 
They love that time with their friends, so having them form peer groups around music is a wonderful thing for them at this stage in their development. At music festivals, motivated, hardworking kids feed off of one another, and often children will return from these experiences having had major epiphanies about how to practice and get things done more productively. Wow, all of this goal setting sounds exhausting to some of you, right? Let's talk about what we can do between the goals to use what I call repertoire windows. Repertoire windows for me are when life opens the possibility for us to learn something new and add it to our repertoire in short time. For us, this happens between concerts or events during school breaks or summer. It can be anywhere from a few weeks to a few months, and without a plan, I feel some parents will just continue doing the same things they have been and miss a great opportunity to add some new things to their repertoire. Most young artists, if you ask them, have a wish list. Some things on the list are more appropriate than others. It's time to pinpoint some of those things and schedule them for these windows of opportunity. It doesn't need to be hardcore work either if you're really in need of a breather. This could be an opportunity to just learn a short piece to secure a skill set you've been working on or the chance to explore a chamber opportunity with a new friend. Maybe it's the chance to learn a 20th century work to put on your repertoire list for later because you know it's a key component in a competition you've been eyeing. Or maybe it's time to give your first cadenza a go and schedule a session with a composition instructor to get help writing it out. But the key is to have some thoughtful objectives behind it so that you are really getting value out of these chunks of time that we find throughout the year. As a parent, you can usually identify these pockets of time early. And while you may not be able to plan too far in advance what you'll do with them, I recommend bringing this up with your teacher a month prior so that they can help you make the most of it. Ava and I have been doing this consistently together, and most recently her window has been used to secure left-hand frame as she adjusts to a new instrument. We have a small packet of frame exercises we're working on, and she's learning a Bach concerto she's always loved, which is slightly easier for her compared to other repertoire she does but it allows her to achieve her hand frame and explore her new violin while hearing a piece that's always meant a lot to her. So sometimes a pocket of time like this will be used to stabilize by taking a step back or two, and other times it might be used to surge ahead. But either way, if you see these periods of time coming, you will be sure to benefit from them. Time flies by very quickly during these times off of our normal schedules, And especially when school is out or the pressure is off, I think so much can be accomplished joyfully. We need to hit the refresh and renew button in our work and practice. And here's the thing. Practice for professional musicians doesn't usually get time off. It gets fresh approaches or new styles of music, maybe less pressure in a performance or two or a change in location. Practice to a professional is a labor of love. So one thing I think we can teach our young artists is that practice doesn't dwindle or stop during breaks from school. It just shifts. It can still be fun while it's productive. We recently asked our teacher if Ava could skip a few weeks of etudes and instead write a few arrangements of simple Christmas carols using double stops she was working on in her scale system. 
She then got to play them for her school and learn some cool double stop skills at the same time. She also got to practice writing them down correctly and used some of those skills she's picked up in musicianship class at conservatory. Since we've been doing this a few years now, and it is something I did regularly with my private studio, I can tell you that it really adds up to something very noticeable in her training and on her repertoire list. Because when you add up all of these weeks of opportunity, it really is a significant amount of time, and yet it can easily slip through our fingers if we don't plan a little for it. I think it also helps avoid the slumps of summer I see in teens sometimes, and the tendency to cram and then see practice come to a halt. A steady stream of curious and happy learning is key to your young artist's long-term success. Truly, the best musicians I know come across this way. Curious, steady stream learners of new styles and literature, weaving each new discovery into their already beautiful craft. They don't take breaks, per se. They just shift their energy. And for young artists, moving practice away from the idea that it is work that needs a full-on break is a healthy move, in my opinion, as they strive toward being professional musicians. I hope you enjoyed this podcast on motivation and initiative, and I hope that you find opportunities to expand your studies and experience the joy of music in your holiday break this year. Maybe you'll learn something new. We have some exciting podcasts in the works over here, as well as me appearing as a guest in a few interviews in other podcasts soon. I'm so grateful for these opportunities to talk about what I love, so I'll be posting about them on Instagram so that you can keep an eye out. One new feature to this podcast that will be starting in 2019 is that I will be answering questions that you submit to me by email. So if you're somebody who's had a question for me, Please shoot those emails to me now, and you might hear me talk about it on a future episode. Don't miss a beat. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Podbean. If you have a question or a topic you would like to discuss on Beyond the Triangle, my ears are wide open. Write me at beyondthetrianglepodcast at gmail.com, and let's connect. Let's connect.